It's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days. And we are in the last days. Brothers and sisters, this is the Remnant Warrior, and you are now listening to Buy Their Fruits on the Kingdom Productions Network. Buy their fruits, you shall know them. Buy, 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 buy their fruits. Welcome to Buy Their Fruits. My name is Bryant McCullough. I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy. How you doing? Man, I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to our guest today. So I want to jump right in and give him a chance to introduce himself. This is Ali Siadatan, founder of Think Again Productions. I'm going to let him run down a couple of things, uh, you know, where you can find him, where you can find his work and where you can support him now. And then we might even remind you at the end. So Ali, if you want to jump in and go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Brian. Hi, Jeremy. So good to be here. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Um, I am the founder of Thinking in Productions. It is a multimedia ministry uh, that is kind of commissioned to bring um, revelation that is coming, I think, to this generation uh, of the body of Christ uh, to really um, express um, all the knowledge and um, um, pearls of wisdom that the Lord is giving to this generation that are really, you know, uh, bringing a much deeper understanding uh, to the Word of God and a deeper understanding of topics that I think were maybe were not relevant to previous generations, but had been put aside for our generation. Um, whether it's, you know, archaeology, discovery of archaeology, whether it's insight into the prophetic um, or even the supernatural. Uh, so this ministry is set up to bring all of this information uh, to lighten the service of, of the people of God and in the service of our King. Uh, you can go to my website, thinkagainproductions.com, and watch the documentary that's there. It's free. You can leave a donation if the Lord moves you by clicking on the donation button on the bottom screen, and you can also um, sign up for the newsletter just to, to stay informed with, with what we do. And there's also a patron account I'll, I'll, uh, where I'm going to have an audio series 
I'll, I'll talk about that later. Beautiful. Well, I can't tell you how excited we are. Jeremy and I both, you know, we've shared your shows back and forth for years. Uh, shows on deception detection, shows with Barry Gilbert, you know, just some of our favorite people to listen to. And uh, they just bring such edifying conversations to the table and introduce us to just amazing guests, one of which being you. And uh, we are grateful for that. And we're also grateful for your time and this opportunity to, to talk to you as well. Um, I want to give Jeremy a chance to jump in real quick. And uh, if he had anything before we really start digging in. Yeah, so today, you know, we're going to get into the topic of um, Throne of Satan and Zeus and how they connect together and, and what that is all about. And we know that that's, that's in the book of Revelation. And the first time I ever heard this topic was on Kay Carswell's, you know, Deception Detection with Ali. And it was just mind blowing. And, and it was especially when you do the research between all the, you know, the ancient gods and, and the uh, fallen angels and how they all connect, you know, all these ancient uh, cultures and their gods and the epitaphs and, and all that good stuff that Ali does. And I know that Derek Gilbert also does. Um, so this research is one of my one of my favorite topics to listen to and to learn about. And uh, so I'm going to let, let Ali take it from here and get into the throne of Satan. Okay. Um... That, yeah, that is a fascinating, you know, piece of insight that the Lord gave us. Uh, it was 1997, and this was a period of time uh, between kind of 1995 and 1997, where uh, in our small um, Christian uh, group and in our weekly Bible studies, the Lord really opened the doors um, of revelation into all of these topics, uh, the, the Nephilim, uh, the sons of God, and the gods of the nations uh, and how these things, you know, connected to the UFO phenomenon and which was also part of what we're looking into. So in 1997, I walked up the stairs and this gentleman, you know, with whom um, we're studying the Bible, he said to me, I know where the throne of Satan is. I said, really, you know where the throne of Satan is? Where's the throne of Satan? He said, it's in Pergamum. And I said to him, well, how do you know that? He says, it says right here. And then he showed me Revelation, you know, chapter two. Um, uh, it's one of the letters that the, wrote, that the Lord wrote to seven congregations. And we don't really think about th these letters. They're called the Christine letters because, you know, we, we think of Paul's letters, Peter, Jude, et cetera, the epistles. Um, but the Lord wrote seven letters. And these are tucked away in, in, in the first uh few chapters of the book of revelation chapter two and three so we don't think about it because they're in the book of revelation but he actually wrote seven letters and to the church of pergamum um he wrote you know uh this he said to the angel of messiah's community in pergamum write thus says the one who has a sharp two-edged sword i know where you live where satan's throne is yet you continue to hold firm to my name and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was called among you where Satan resides. So twice does it kind of mention this throne of Satan where Satan resides. And it mentions Antipas, the bishop of the congregation of that city. There was only one church at that time in the whole town. Everyone who was a believer was a member of it. And Antipas was um, in the bishop. He was then uh, sacrificed in the altar of Zeus because there was an altar of Zeus there. So this was interesting. The throne of Satan is in Pergamum. And I thought, well, what does this mean? So I went ahead and I was doing my graduate studies at, at the University of Toronto. So I had access to Canada's most powerful library system. This was before the Internet. Like, 
you know, when I put the word Nephilim in, in, in Yahoo, because Google hadn't been invented yet, it said like zero search, uh, zero search results found. So this was this was all like library research. Um, so I went and I and I put in uh, Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, see what I could dig up. And I think it was I'm pretty sure with hindsight that it really was the Holy Spirit. It sent me to the uh, Library of Archaeology, which was to keep just to keep the story on point. I went to, to to where I needed to go in the library system, and there I found the notes of an archaeologist, Carl Human, um, who at the end of the 19th century, he was a German engineer turned archaeologist. He had dug up the ancient city of Pergamum, which was in Asia Minor, in the Aegean Sea, in modern day Turkey, south of Istanbul, and he had found the most important altar in the entire ancient world in the greco-roman civilization all the way into the roman empire the most important altar to zeus who was the chief of the pantheon of the gods of of the empire and that was in the city of pergamum and he wrote in his notes that if there was one thing um that the christ must have been pointing to uh, uh, if it was this architectural thing, you know, that, that it must have been, if, if the throne is, is an actual architectural uh, idea, it's not just a spiritual idea. So Carl Heumann was saying that the only thing of architectural significance in the city of Pergamum that the Christ could have been pointing to was the altar of Zeus. And and I was and I was I thought it was fascinating that that this archaeologist had actually read this very passage in the book of Revelation, in his diligent study of the city of Pergamum and had mentioned it, and I so I photocopied that uh, that page with the notes of the archaeologist and I and I came back and I said you know what it's interesting I looked into it and, and the archaeologist uh, who dug up Pergamum thinks uh, like you do that perhaps there is something there that could have been the throne of Satan. And the question suddenly came to mind, which is, if this is true, if the altar of Zeus is in fact the throne, then is the Lord making a connection for us between the chief of the pantheon of the gods and um, Satan, you know, the, the most important um, uh, character in the, in the pantheon of, of pagan gods and the leader of the fallen angels? Is that is that what the scripture is doing? Is it, it's connecting those two? The Lord is bringing His insight, and He's pointing to something of the Roman Empire, which was this altar to the chief deity of the pantheon, and the Lord is identifying it as the throne of Satan. Is that really what's happening? So God is making that connection for us, and the Holy Spirit is kind of revealing this to us. That idea came into the mind, and that was the idea that launched me. Like when you hit a marble with your with your you know index, it was like it launched me into um, looking into this whole concept of the gods of the ancient world. Could there be a connection between the gods and the fallen angels? I did not know that I was about to find close to a thousand verses in the Bible that made that connection very clear, and that this is something that had been I think sealed from the eyes of all of us. All these years, you know, we, we just thought about these gods as being creatures of mythology. Yet the Bible says something very different. But this was the verse that God kind of used to open the door into that entire study and suddenly, you know, dig this stuff up. 
um, it's very interesting how we can read the word of God over and over again and not see something until God suddenly removes a veil. So that led into into the search for for the term the, the gods. I started to um, consult writings. You know, there was no Christian writings really that you could read. So I had to read non-Christian writings, even things like the ancient astronauts, even though I didn't believe at all in their theory or perspective, but I was kind of using their research. They had dug up information. Like, you know, I realized that the libraries of the ancient world were mainly dedicated to revelation from these, you know, quote-unquote gods that, um, that if, for instance, here in the city of Pergamum, there was this altar of Zeus and Antipas was accused of monotheism. That's why he was killed because the emperor received his power from the gods and from Jupiter, which was a Roman name for Zeus. And these people who were citizens of Rome in this city, uh, who was of great religious importance, all of the seven cities that the Lord writes to in Asia, Asia Minor, they are of great spiritual significance to, to the pagan world. And this was a very important city. It was, you know, the, where the altar of the leader of all the gods was. And so Antipas was accused of betraying the emperor and betraying the gods and leading a movement of heresy uh, against, you know, the polytheism. And so he was then placed inside of this bull, which was a symbol of Zeus. It was a brazen bull made of bronze. And there they lit a fire under him. And the idea was that as the person was being sacrificed in the altar to Zeus in this bronze bull, the person would cry in pain and the mouth and nostrils of the bull came to life. And that's how Zeus was satisfied. Um, church historians, you know, record that Antipas prayed for his congregation until the moment of his death as he burnt, cooked slowly in that bronze bull. Um, as a sacrifice. And that's why the Lord even remembers and mentions him, but he mentions him in the context of Satan's throne. And it's like, where was Antipas killed? Well, he was killed in the altar of Zeus, in the bull that represented Zeus. And so that becomes another clue that connects this passage to that whole, you know, altar. Um, and so I, I started to dig up the passages, you know, about, about the gods. And I had a program that allowed me to search the entire Bible by isolating words, and I did that, and I, I put in God's, and thinking, oh, it'll be a few passages that will come up, and then suddenly when I pressed print, the printer was just going on and on and on and on. It was just like, what? It was just print, 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 print. And so I put all those passages on my desk, and I sat down and I read them in one shot. I, I've tried to count it. I still have all those pages. Several times I've sat down to count it. When I get, like, close to 600 verses, I just lose count. So at least I've counted 600 verses. And so basically, um, I realized that, first of all, the Bible calls the Lord God, the God of gods, like in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, and, and in other places as well in, uh, in the Old Testament. It, it's one of the names of God, that he's the God of gods, El HaElohim, and Lord of lords, Adon HaAdonim. And so I was like, wait a second, why would God be called the leader of mythological beings? It says that he rules in the congregation, like in the assembly of the gods. It, why would he rule mythological beings? Um, these guys are chastised. They are told, like in the book of Psalms, they are told, worship him, meaning God, all ye gods. 
Um, for instance, in the story of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, where it says that God will come and judge, you know, the Egyptians and the Pharaoh and all that stuff. But it says that God will judge the gods of Egypt. It's written from the first person. I will judge the gods of Egypt, the Elohim, Hametzchaim. You know, uh, the Egyptians are the descendants of Metzchaim, the son of Ham. And so basically, I was like, why would God judge mythological beings? Like he's come all the way from heaven to judge the figment of the imagination of the Egyptians? Is that really what it's saying? And so placed in the context, you know, of these things, even in in in, in the New Testament, like in First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, um, Paul actually quotes Deuteronomy 32. It's very interesting the way he does it. Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, reveals that these beings, these gods, are demons. So, you know, they're not they're not actually gods. And and talking about the Egyptians. But then Paul applies that to the Greek gods. And he says, I don't want you to be partakers of the table of demons because inside of the marketplace, when you know you'd go to work the, at different sections of, of, of the marketplace, if you were selling you know, cu- uh, cutlery or if you were selling uh, materials or if you're selling wood or whatever, you had your own section of the market, like, like Wall Street, you then sacrificed to the deity of that oversaw your section of the market for blessings and you and you sacrificed food to, to idols and you all ate it together in the morning. And Paul is saying you can't do this anymore because you're you're now partaking of the Lord's table. But then he identifies in that verse who these beings are, that they're actually, you know, demons he calls them, devils. And and so he's taking the verse from Deuteronomy, which was applied to 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 the spirits that are behind Egypt, and he's applying them to the ones that are behind the Greco-Roman world seamlessly. For him, it's very natural. It's the same guys. And so so these passages and many, many more, I mean, when you read them all in one shot, it really opens your eyes. It's really like a scale that falls off, you know? you it, It's like someone is beaming light into your eyes. And and as the light continues to to beam into your eyes, which is the word of God, concerning a single topic, slowly the scales fall off. And suddenly I was like, wow. So these guys are real and they're kind of, you know, behind the nations. And and I started to take more seriously what was said of these beings by the various nations. What did the Mesopotamians say about them? And, you know, what did the most ancient of cultures say about them? And I realized that what they said is that that the codes of civilization were passed down to the various nations by these beings. And I thought, well, that's really interesting, the amount of knowledge that's passed down, whether it's the Code of Hammurabi, which is the one of the most ancient you know, codes that was passed down by the sun god Shams, who is called Apollo to, to the Greeks, because it's the same guys, they just, their names changes from civilization to civilization. But there's right. 12 um, as the leader of the pantheons. And, and so, um, um, knowledge of, of, of worldview was passed down, how to understand the world in which you live, right and wrong, the afterlife, how to connect to these beings in order to, you know, be resurrected in their world after you die. That was a very important part of it. How to live according to their way. What is the righteous way, you know, according to these beings? And and so he, the, we, I realized, well, we don't actually, they're not visiting our world or something like that. 
we are living in the civilizations born of the codes passed down by these beings who now I see that the Bible was essentially identifying as the fallen angels while God had, you know, spoken to Israel, to Jacob and given his codes and his law. And so I was meditating on all of this and, and was it was a huge amount of information pouring in. Um, I remembered uh, Chuck Missler, who was a Bible scholar who recently died. He was an American Bible scholar, you know, very good scholar, touched many people's lives. And I've, I met him many times. I had intimate Bible studies with him, um, uh, like just a few of us uh, around a dinner table. And um, Chuck used to talk about, was one of the only teachers that would talk about the sons of God and their offspring, the, the Nephilim, the giants. And he would kind of do all the customary passages that people look at when they tackle this topic. And then he would say, oh, there is one more passage in which the term sons of God is mentioned. But you have to read the Bible in the Septuagint, which is the uh, Old Testament's Greek translation uh, from Hebrew to Greek, uh, you know, about, let's say, 300 years before the time of Christ. And it was, it was you know, a very important uh, and honored translation of the old testament it was used by the early church um and uh, paul quotes from it and other people quote from it uh because a lot of the audience spoke greek and not hebrew and and so it was used by rabbis to teach their um hellenized you know uh, congregations as well who no longer spoke hebrew around the mediterranean so it was really an important you know bible and so he, he used to say, if you look up um, the the, the um, Song of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, you'll see that in the Septuagint, it says that when God divided the nations and, and gave them their boundaries, set their boundaries, and gave them their inheritance, he did it according to a number of the sons of God. And Jacob was is his inheritance, and he kind of chose Jacob for himself. So there was a suddenly this spiritual division, and then the sons of God were an idiom for fallen angels. This is something that you know was being established in in certain circles, um, and so the idea suddenly was that oh, the fallen angels had been given the nations, and God had um, received you know chosen Jacob uh, for himself, and suddenly this verse now made a lot more sense. Chuck would just mention it as just, here's another place where sons of God is mentioned, he would move on. But with this revelation of the gods that came from this passage in Revelation chapter two, uh, with the altar of Satan, um, uh, the altar of Zeus and the throne of Satan, kind of being the bridge, the link that, op that kind of connected the idea of fallen angels to the gods of the ancient world, that led me into seeing these hundreds of verses that clearly talked about these beings as being real. Now, Deuteronomy 32, verse 89, became a cornerstone verse that explained the spiritual division that existed in the world. Now, immediately, the moment I, 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 you know, I read that from that point of view, immediately other verses poured into my consciousness. One was Daniel chapter 10, where this angel comes to speak to the prophet Daniel and deliver a, a scriptural message to him, but he's encountered by, he's opposed by the prince of Persia. And then he says he has to go find, fight the prince of Greece. So there's all these principalities that were behind the Persian and Greco empires. 
And now I could understand because Deuteronomy 32, if, if it's true that the nations are given to the hands of these beings um, who set themselves up as gods to be worshipped, these fallen angels. Now, Daniel chapter 10 made more sense to me and the temptations of Christ uh, where Satan says to him, you know, that all the kingdoms, dominion over all the kingdoms of the world have been given to him and he'll give them to whom he, whom, whoever he will. And he asks to be worshipped. He's saying essentially, look. I already have all the empires. God gave them to me. And if you worship me, you can be the king of Israel and essentially will incorporate Israel into the rest of the empires and you can be the boss of all of them. And the Lord, of course, responded to him, you know, it is also written only worship God, you know, worship God. And so uh, Satan behind me. And so he kind of dismissed this ambition that Satan has, according to Isaiah um, the five I wills of Satan, I think it's in Isaiah 14, if I'm not mistaken, that talks about the ambitions of Satan's heart that the Holy Spirit lay, lays bare for us. And and he wants to be worshipped as the first principle of the created order. And um, that is the root of idol worship. That's where it comes from and that desire. In fact, in, in the first chapter of the epistle of the Romans, Paul defines idol worship as the worship of the creature over the worship of the creator. So he provides a very broad definition. This is These are things I have to look into. I was like, wait, so if these guys were in fact what was being worshipped by the nations, then what are idols? How are idols defined? I thought idols were just like sticks and stones. And so I realized that idols were in fact, first of all, defined, anything can be an idol, of worshipping a fallen angels. Like, like it says in the, in the letter to Colossians, don't worship angels. And you think, why would Paul give that warning if that wasn't actually happening? So angel, angels can become idols if they become objects of worship, because idol worship is actually defined as the worship of the creation over the creator. It's a broad definition. Now, sometimes people would actually make physical uh, orna ornaments that represented these spiritual forces that they were worshiping and sacrificing to, like Molech, you know, or the Queen of Heaven. There are some mentioned in the Old Testament by name who are of great renown in the councils of the fallen angels. And so, so this was kind of opening up this huge connection and and this realization that that there was really a spiritual division. Now I could understand why these guys wanted to get rid of Antipas or why they you know, the first three, four hundred years of the movement uh, as the missionaries poured out of Israel and brought the message of the Messiah to the nations, why the Roman citizens who converted to, to this brand of, of Judaism, I guess, to the Judaism of Jesus, um, why is it that these guys were then, you know, arrested and killed in the Colosseums, like the greatest of all the persecutions, the 10th the persecution, the last of the persecutions carried out by Diocletian. He killed more than all the nine persecutions, you know, before him combined. And Diocletian sent an oracle to Delphi, to 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 Apollo's, to uh, to seek the, the 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 wisdom of Apollo. And Apollo, concerning the the citizens of his of his nation that were converting to the worship uh, of the God of Israel uh, and the, the the monotheistic religion. And the only one that was monotheistic. All the religions worshipped the gods, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Mesopotamians, the Indians, the Chinese, and of course the Greeks, Romans, and even the Mesoamericans. So, and the Jews were exceptional in that sense. Um, they had been called and, and God had revealed his knowledge to them his through his prophets, and then he appeared among them as one of them. 
and then send his own spirit uh, after the atonement sacrifice was given. And this created a revolution as this knowledge came into the Greco-Roman world. It created an upheaval um, in the Greco-Roman world. And, and the Lord did take his the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which was a place in Israel um, where the, the Romans who, who had colonized Israel had created for themselves a place of worship. And they had picked a town which was around a mountain, Mount Hermon, which was traditionally associated with paganism. And there they had you know, set up all these temples. And one day the Lord takes his disciples and he goes for a walk from the Sea of Galilee up. Uh, you know, it's a one day walk. It's only like a 15 minute bus ride today, but it's like a one day walk with sandals uh, in, in mountains, unpaved roads. And he goes there just to ask a question. He stands on this uh, mountain of this rock of, of idol worship. There's tons of these temples underneath it. And then he says, who do people say I am? And, you know, who do you say I am? And, and Peter says, you're the son of God, the Messiah. And he's, God, the Lord says to him, no man gave you this idea. Upon this rock, you know, I shall build my church, which is the rock that he was standing on. And the gates of Hades, which was the sacrificial altar at the bottom of the of the cliff was called the gates of Hades. You would throw in your sacrifice once you pray to the gods. It was a waterway that spiraled into the ground. And if, if it kind of swallowed your sacrifice bound, you were your prayers were answered. If not, the gods were not going to answer your prayers. That was called the gates of Hades. It was like, you know, the path to this underworld. And he, he says in the gates of Hades will not overcome uh, his church. So he's actually taking them to a place of the spirituality of this this alternative spirituality of the nations. And he's saying this system of spirituality is going to be diminished and me and my people will rise into this empire and nothing is going to be able to stop it. These forces won't be able to stop it. And that's exactly what happens. Starting with these seven um, congregations in, per in, in, in Asia Minor, of which Pergamum is one, which are kind of the gateway to the Greco-Roman world spiritually. And so, so the city of Pergamum is where the altar of the head of, of, of this pantheon is. And, and even what is depicted on this altar is very interesting because it depicts um, that the, uh, the gods, you know, destroyed the rebellion of the Titans and reestablished order. Kind of like, it's like the story of the flood where something came that was, was going to be very disruptive to the human race and God dealt with it through the flood and 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 then brought order into the world and then after the flood like Abraham you know he was I think 80 years old when Noah died and through Abraham God began the establishing of his instructions and his kingdom on earth so out of the the, the chaos of, 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 of the flood came a world in which God's instructions would begin to fill the earth from Abraham to, to Jacob, from Jacob to Mount Sinai, and then to Christ. And, and then with that came uh, the Holy Spirit and the invitation to the nations to come in. And, and so the knowledge of God continued to fill the earth ever more, starting with Abraham. And so what, what the, the, the altar of Zeus depicts is in a way it says that civilization was restored by Zeus. And he is the one that brought order to the world. And the purpose of the Greco-Roman world is to bring this Jupiterian order, this Paxa Romana, this Roman peace, this civilization 
to all the nations. That's why Rome has the right to conquer, you know, and colonize because it brings order and civilization of Zeus, of Jupiter to it. Most of the senators of Rome were um, um, priests of Jupiter. And libraries were always attached to these altars. Uh, and I was like, why is there a library? You know, there's libraries in the ancient world. There's the great library of Alexandria. For instance, how do we have this Old Testament translation uh, into the Greek, the Septuagint? Well, we have it because Ptolemy, the Greek ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh of Egypt, noticed that in the great library of Alexandria, the laws of all the gods existed except the laws of the God of Israel. And so he he asked, he, he selected these elders. Uh, uh, Alexandria had a great Jewish community. That's probably where the Lord went and, you know, to spend his childhood at where as they're escaping Herod. So Alexandria had a great, huge Jewish community. And and so he he brought elders to to translate um, the uh, the Bible um, in into Greek and place it inside of that library. Was, that's how that that book. These libraries were not libraries like we understand the whole concept of the library. They were attached to these temples because they held the wisdom revealed by these beings. And, and the politicians, some of them priests, like in the case of the Senate of Rome, consulted these writings. And the emperor's power came from these beings. It's like Satan says that he has dominion, he gives it to whomever he will. So when the Lord came, he was going to challenge and upset all of this. And, and so this was a huge revelation um, that somehow, you know, this, this um, pagan world was actually not a world ruled by mythological beings and that the nations were not in bondage to the fruits of their own imagination and that this altar of Zeus that found itself in the city of Pergamum was of great spiritual importance. It tied the hearts and minds of an entire empire to a being. And so the Lord was talking about all of these things. The Old New Testament, like when Paul uh, is given his great commission, uh, God says to Paul, I think it's in Acts chapter 26, you're going to go and bring, you know, my word to Gentiles and bring them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, you know, to to fellowship with the living God. So it's like, so this really was kind of the great upheaval that was going to happen as the spirit of God poured into the nations. And that's why when Diocletian sends a messenger to Oracle of Apollo in Delphi and says, what should I do to the Christians? of you know, those who are converting to this in my empire. And the oracle said Apollo's message is the Christians are the enemies to the gods. And this then, so immediately the emperor ordered that the civil rights of Christians be suspended. And therefore they were now could be arrested and that they are to be arrested, that their Bibles are to be confiscated and burned and that they are to to be tortured until they die or sacrifice to the gods. He had now the spiritual authority given to him in order as the as the servant of these beings, yet emperor, yet servant of these beings to carry out. You know, when you look to this, when you look at the ancient world, like going back to the most ancient of city-states, because the ancient world was ruled by city-states the way that I think prophetically, Book of Revelation is, says that eventually there'll be one more city-state that will rule all the cities of the world. 
And so the 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 Babylon was a city state, and before Babylon there was also other city states, but they began in Mesopotamia. And it was always this revolution where instead of living in clans and families, we began to live uh, in these centers of civilization where there was a king who was also a priest. And he brought word and power from these beings, and he we ruled now over the people in that as a priest king. That is actually how urbanization began. That is the birth of the world. And these priest kings in Mesopotamia were called Sipar. Well, they had different names, but that's one of their names. It means shepherd, because they were to be the shepherd of the people on behalf of the gods. And that's why I think the Lord presents himself as the good shepherd. He is in the worldview of the world in which he has come. He's essentially saying, I am the king of kings. I am the good shepherd. And I am going to shepherd the people of God on behalf of the father. He becomes our shepherd. And so so this is kind of, you know, um, what what this Roman emperor saw himself as? Oh, he's the shepherd of, of the of the of the Romans, and they've gone astray. And he's now going to you know set things right and make sure his strength remains. And that's why Antipas was killed. So this is kind of the backdrop. And and so what's interesting is when the Lord comes and you know he um, preaches and gets crucified and leaves and sends the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Roman Empire gets entangled with Jerusalem and comes to destroy the temple. And this is not the first time where this, the house of Jupiter, had risen against the temple of Jerusalem. The first time, actually, was a very interesting event. It happened under um, another very devout follower of Zeus, and that was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, he lived, let's say, in the 160s, you know, BC. Um, and he uh, came and he decided that he was going to extinguish the light of worship in the Temple of Jerusalem. And he came by ruse and flattery. And he, he, the Greeks, you know, they came and they brought darkness to the mind through philosophy. Um, not, not like the Romans that came with their boots on the ground. Um, so they, Antiochus Epiphanes um, uh, came and he convinced the priests, uh, the Levites, the Kohen, the priests of, of Israel to forsake the worship of their God by accepting the worship of the Greco-Roman world and sacrificing to them and becoming more Hellenized. And, and they refused. So he, he replaced them. He put on the leadership of, of Israel's priesthood, his own guys. Um, who were kind of these, you know, Hellenized Jews who were willing to play along with Antiochus Epiphanes' uh, agenda. And eventually, the climax of that agenda was that he was able to um, sacrifice a pig, uh, which, uh, you know, if you know what the old, it says, that, that you know, eating pork is an abomination to the Lord. Um, and, and so they were not allowed to eat uh, pork. And, and so he, he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the city uh, of Jerusalem, um, making that altar desolate. And then he opens the curtain to the Holy of Holies, where only 
the high priest could enter and only on the, on the day of atonement. And we read that in the temple of Solomon until the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, um, God's presence uh, would descend, the glory would descend on the day of atonement and cover the Holy of Holies as the high priest was in there praying and sacrificing for himself and for Israel. And so this was a very important thing. He opens the holy the curtain and he enters and he erects a idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and extinguishes the light of the candlestick, uh, which was in, in the side of the, uh, the, the most inner sanctum of the temple and represented the light of God in the world. He extinguishes that light. He sacrifices a pig on the sacrificial altar, rendering it now useless. There are no more sacrifices that can be offered to the Lord. He shuts the system down and erects an, an idol to Zeus. And so this then, God then, you know, um, ignites the, the spirit again inside of this house of, of among the priests of Israel, one family, um, um, the Maccabees. And the Judah Maccabee, the father and his sons, all of them priests and Levites, they rise against Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and even though they're just a bunch of like, you know, uh, compared to the phalanx, the, 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 the imperial system of Greek warfare, um, uh, which was the basis of the legions, uh, these guys were like basically like hillbillies. You know, they're, they're kind of running down the Judean hills and attacking the phalanx sideways because you, you, they were not designed for that kind of warfare. You know, it was a guerrilla warfare. They, you know, you, you march forward with the shields over your head or in front of you and spears. And so you, you were designed to fight armies in open field, not to be ambushed sideways on mountain roads. And so they were able miraculously to defeat the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes and throw them back out of the land and reignite the light of um, God's temple and God's religion and, and the messianic dream that is going to lead to the salvation of the world and to the new creation. All of that is now on track as the Maccabees you know, ignite this. And this becomes something that is remembered uh, to this day. It is called you know, the, the dedication uh, of the temple. Uh, it's called Hanukkah. And it's 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 you know something that's celebrated to this day. And the Lord in John chapter ten, I think it's verse twenty-two, he attends uh, the celebration of Hanukkah. And they come and ask him, "Are you going to reveal yourself as the Messiah?" Because because of this victory, there was an idea among some of the Jewish Pharisees that this was a sign from God that the Messiah would reveal himself on one of these Hanukkahs and challenge you know the might of Rome. And so they come and they ask him, are you the Christ? You know, they ask him in that Hanukkah in John chapter 10 while he's attending this because there's a context, you know, uh, of this. And so the second time the house of, uh, you know, this, this, the same deity, the same uh, fallen angel, they rise against um, Jerusalem is after the time of, of the ascension of the Lord um, where the armies of Rome, again, under Jupiter, under Zeus, come and this time, as they challenge the temple and they destroy the temple this time physically, as the Lord had prophesied it, the Lord's response in the, in the time of Hanukkah, the God, you know, rekindled the light. This time, God sends the Holy Spirit. 
this is becomes the response to uh, of God. He sends a greater light into the world in the form of his spirit as this challenge comes uh, from from this empire led by, you know, Zeus or Jupiter, which which it seems of the Bible here in Revelation chapter two identifies, I, I believe, as Satan. And and by the way, um, the, the year the documentary was released, UFOs, Angels and Gods, uh, which people can watch on my website and there's tons of stuff on my YouTube channel as well. That year, um, it was 2006, um, near where I worked and lived, um, a store opened that sold magazines. And I walked in to just check it out. And as I walked in there, I was looking at the magazines. There was one magazine that caught my eye. It was called Biblical Archaeology. And I thought, oh, Biblical Archaeology, that's right up my alley. So I picked up the magazine, and there was an image from the throne, from the altar of Zeus in Pergamon. And I immediately recognized it. And then in big, it said, um, is this Satan's throne or Satan's throne? And I was like, what? Satan's throne? Altar of Pergamon? Somebody else in the world is talking about this. And so I bought it and I ran home and I sat down and I read it. And it was an interview with Adela Collins, a um, theologian from Yale Seminary. Uh, and she explained that um, if there was anything of architectural importance in the city of Pergamum that Christ would have been alluding to, was, would, must have been this altar. And she then goes into early church writings in which she says, you know, that the early church believed that the gods were the fallen angels. And she quotes Justin Marher. And, and then she then quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, about this division. Um, and she says, like, you know, the Septuagint says, in fact, that the sons of God ruled over the nations. Um, and um, But she then says something that I didn't know. She says the Dead Sea Scrolls the oldest Hebrew copies of the book of Deuteronomy also state in them because we found tons of Hebrew copies of the book of Deuteronomy in the caves of Qumran, which were discovered in 1947, you know, between 1946 and 48, you know, that kind of that era, uh, as the Israel was coming prophetically to, to become a nation again, uh, many things came to life prophetically and the words of God you know, kept in these caves, also came uh, to light. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there as well, it says that, you know, the sons of God, uh, when the, God divided the nations and gave them their boundaries, he did according to the number of the sons of God. Now, most of our Bibles will say sons of Israel, that God divided the yeah. nation according to the sons of Israel. And it's, as Chuck Missler used to say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, well, why is that? Because our our Bibles are translations of what's called the Masoretic text. All the Bibles, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, are, are the Old Testament that is translated for us into the English language from Hebrew is based on the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is a thousand years old. The, the Masoretic Bible was put together a thousand years ago. But when we look at for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls were going back 2,200 years. It's the oldest Hebrew copies we have of the Book of Deuteronomy. When we're looking at the Septuagint, we're going back 2,200 years, 2,300 years. So these were foundational, you know, scriptures that have suddenly come to our attention now. Um, 
so this is this is this is interesting. Why now? And I'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But I want to just finish the th altar since that's what you guys asked about. Um, so this is this was something that was perhaps hidden, but now it's coming to life. Maybe there is a reason that says sons of Israel. Maybe the Masoretic text wasn't just trying to erase the concept of sons of God, because it was it was kind of you know translated by handed down by by the sects of Judaism that rejected Christ and so the concept of the son of God was a sensitive concept and so maybe they were like no let's not have the term sons of God or perhaps there's a double meaning you know um, uh, once I was talking to a messianic rabbi a rabbi who believes in Jesus and and I brought this to his attention and and you know he he said well perhaps there is a meaning in both uh, translations, something to consider. And I thought, okay, maybe there is. But for my intent and purposes in, in this in this research, in, in, the, in the unveiling of this mystery, in the older translations that present the division of nations um, and Israel in, in a way that the nations are given in the hands of the fallen angels and um, that Israel is taken for God, is in agreement with so many passages in the scripture, like Daniel 2, like the temptations of Christ, and many, many others that that you know explain this division makes makes a lot of things come to life in scripture. Even the whole idea that in the blood of Christ we are purchased. Why are we purchased? From who? From what? Oh, the nations literally belong to these guys because they are fallen and they're given in the hands of the fallen angels. And so they belong to him. The Lord is literally purchasing us in his blood so when we come to him the yoke of the worship of these beings falls from our shoulders and 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 that's why we shift from polytheism to monotheism starting with cornelius i mean sometimes some 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 brothers and sisters don't realize that you know pentecost um in jerusalem was all jews uh, there was not a single Gentile. I mean, there were some converts to Judaism which were considered Jews, like proselytes. They were circumcised and everything. There was well Jews because there were devout Jews who come to keep uh, one of the appointed days of Moses's law, and that is when the Holy Spirit descends. And it says in the house, which was a term used among the Jews at that time for the temple, you know. Um, um, so the the house that it's not the upper room. There's tons of people. That's why they're all there at the temple worshiping when God's presence descends over the disciples and they all can see them. And that's why there's 3000 of them and they get baptized and everything because they're all at the temple worshiping and the temple comes equipped with giant baptismal facilities. You know, they're there, you can go see them today. In fact, I'm hoping to organize a tour to Israel, uh, join us. So basically um, the, the, um, the Cornelius is really the first Gentile where, you know, Peter says that the same thing happened in his house, that the Holy Spirit and fire came down. It's like it was like a second Pentecost. And Cornelius lives in the Roman Empire. He's the Roman centurion. So the same way that God, through the Passover lamb, freed the Hebrews from the gods of Egypt. Now, through the Passover lamb, he was going to free the people of all nations. You know, through Christ, the Passover lamb, free the people of all nations from bondage to these beings. Because when you claim his blood over your life and pledge allegiance to him, you no longer belong to the kingdom of the enemy. And you are then transported into the kingdom of the Lord. And that is why we become one people with the people of Israel who are already in that 
category, you know, of reality um, in this division of Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, which is what I think Paul is, is, is basing his one man idea in his letter to the Ephesians on this concept that we now have become, you know, we have joined the household of Israel on the same side of the fence, so to speak. Their king is now also our king, and their inheritance is also our inheritance as royal priests in an eternal kingdom, as servants of the Most High, governing over the angels. Uh, our destiny, you know, the earth is the birthplace, the incubation chamber of the immortal sons of God. And so, the Holy Spirit pours as 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 the forces of Rome under Jupiter, uh, you know, the, the the one who's worshipped at this throne, Zeus, uh, come and destroy the temple. But prophetically, we are told by the Lord that the end times will be a time where the abomination of desolation, like the story of Antiochus Epiphanes, that led to a challenge against Jerusalem and the kindling of God's light through because of the thanks to the Maccabean revolt, that those events are going to happen. The Lord, you know, Daniel prophesied it in detail. It happened after Daniel's lifetime, and everyone thought it's done. But the Lord comes and takes Daniel's prophecy about those very events and says, but these are actually types of the end times. At the end of the age, one more time, there'll be a challenge from the house of Zeus against the city of Jerusalem. And so... Um, when you look at what happened afterwards to this altar and to the Greco-Roman world as the Holy Spirit poured into it, well, the altar was buried and kind of left dead until this Carl Human discovers it um, in the 19th century. And he then asks the Ottoman uh, Empire, the Ottoman uh, Caliph, you know, whether he can transport it by train to Berlin. And he and the Ottoman um, you know, they're Muslims, they, they, they're like, yeah, take this thing, we don't need it. They, he's able to, to, I don't know what details of how he got it done, but he negotiated the deal. They dug up the entire thing, they put it on a train, and they carried it uh, all the way to Berlin. And when it got to Berlin, I think, I have never had a chance to look into these guys. This is one of my, on my to-do list. This group of people petitioned uh, the German government to build a museum that could house the altar reconstructed. Because when you had all this archaeological stuff, uh, you know, 19th century, yeah, archaeology was born essentially at the end of, of the 18th century. Um, but really the 19th century was kind of like the golden age of, of Mesopotamian archaeology. And, and so um, people would bring these artifacts and they would just put a piece of it in a museum. You know, why would you put all of it? It's just was just like a sample. But these guys got together and they said, no, we want this altar reconstructed. And so they they got the permission and they reconstructed the altar of Zeus in the city of Pergamum. And they put it in a museum. Sorry, not a city, in the city of Berlin. They put it in a museum. You can go see it. There is the gates of Ishtar which was another one of these beings mentioned in the Bible. Um, and they, um, uh, it's in the same museum, which, which was the official gates of the city of Babylon. Uh, the captives from Judea, Daniel, and everybody else walked through those gates. They, that's there in the museum. And there is the altar of Zeus in the same museum. 
it's 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 it looks like a temple to me when you look at it like it's called i think the berlin berlin museum now originally it was called das museum di pergamum the the museum of pergamum and there they reconstruct the altar and then they have the opening people can come and see and there albert speer the architect of hitler goes and sees the altar in berlin <laughs> and he wow. he gets inspired and he goes wow this is you know hitler had commissioned him to build something for him um he wanted a he said he wanted a cathedral like the catholic uh, cathedrals and he wanted the the yearly nazi gatherings to be a spiritual experience and so albert speer he thought this is it i found what i was looking for and so he built a much larger version in the city of nuremberg and and where the bull was the brazen bull that represented zeus where antipas was you know uh, burnt in and sacrificed in he put the microphone where hitler would declare the nuremberg laws which outlined the machinery of the holocaust a burnt sacrifice um that's what that's you know holocaust in hebrew is shoah it literally means burnt sacrifice and so as they were coming as god was gathering people in in order to begin the process of leading the world out of the age of empire into the messianic kingdom now that the holy spirit has been given to all the nations that the king has been proclaimed uh, among all the nations it seems that everything is coming full circle back to where it started the city of jerusalem and even there's a mass awakening since 1967 among the jewish people who are now claiming the lord as messiah and so this is as as this was starting to happen and god was calling the people back to the land to prepare the transition from the age of empire into the messianic kingdom uh the enemy rose and was like oh whoa, whoa, whoa. we were going to stop we're going to put a stop to this and so it was from this altar of zeus in in albert uh, spear he put these um um army lights every uh, i don't know 12 feet i forget i have to look at my notes so many feet apart all around this area and then he, at night when he would turn them on they and the light would go up it was these giant army lights they looked like pillars of light so instead of actually having pillars of, of concrete the he created pillars of light and at the very edge of this pillars of light of this you know square that he created was the altar of zeus where satan or you know was it satan yes satan actually i don't say hitler but you know covered with the spirit of satan he stood on that altar and he would then speak to these guys who were all drugged up they they gave them lots of drugs and he, you know, I was watching one of the speeches and Hitler says, I can't see you because it's at night, but, and you can't see me, but I can feel you and you can feel me. And and then, you know, he declares that, that, he, that they are, they are to stop the advance of the Jewish people and, and, and execute them by eradicating them. So to, in order to break scripture and make prophecy unfulfillable, yet the word of God prevailed. And as always, the word of God prevails. And it was very these very events that gave birth to the national presence. And eventually, in 1967, Jerusalem was returned to the Jewish Commonwealth. These are all uh, signposts that were getting closer 
and, and I'm not saying that the Jews are just a concept of Christian prophecy. No, right. uh, there are people in their own rank, you know, that, that have gone through lots of trials and tribulations. Uh, they have been targeted by the enemy because it seems that the fulfillment of biblical prophecy hinges on their destiny. And so, so the enemy has tried to take them out and they have had their own their own struggle, their own spiritual warfare. That's perhaps even older than ours. It goes back to the pharaohs of Egypt. I mean, look how Moses had to be smuggled in uh, on, on a... Uh, you know, the pharaoh, he, um, they say that the pharaoh's daughter uh, took profit from the banks of the Nile. Uh, that's meant to be a joke. You know, you go to the bank and you take profit. So basically, <laughs> yeah, so, so that's, that's, you know, he had to already be smuggled in. And, and there was spiritual warfare that old. So they've been involved in the spiritual war longer than we have. And this was also another moment for them of it. Yet um, God's, you know, that's why I think God says in, 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 you know, when the Lord was asked, what's the most important of all the commandments of Moses? He said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul. Why soul? Why do you have to love God with all your soul? Because you have to be prepared to lose your soul. Now, you know, there will be persecutions and martyrdoms. And if you love God more than your life, because the word that's been translated as soul is nefesh, which means life. So if you love God more than you love your life, then you will be able to withstand persecution and death like Antipas. But if you love your life more than you love the Lord, you will then, you know, put yourself in a position where you where you won't get persecuted or killed. And so, so I think that's why the Lord included that commandment, because this was going to be part of what his people would have to go through. And so as um, this entire thing rose again in Berlin with this altar, uh, with that uh, the replica that you know Albert Speer created for Hitler, and he stood there and he and he commanded all of this, and and there was this moment where it looked like these guys were going to take over Europe and take over Russia, and even in America they had huge huge um, followership, and they were ready getting ready to have a coup here and and take over America as well, and it looked like they were going to really establish this you know global Reich. Uh, and destroy, uh, you know, the people whose destiny, uh, prophecy, you know, was part of the, their destiny was prophesied. Uh, the gospel had to be preached to the nations, and uh, the Jewish people had to return to Jerusalem. And and so he, but then the whole thing fell apart suddenly, and the Lord, you know, rose against it. And there is this scene you can see black and white footage um, of. Um, I don't know whose airplanes it is. Maybe it's American. Maybe it's British. Uh, they're bombing the altar uh, and, uh, uh, in, in Nuremberg, the altar of Zeus that, that Albert Speer built for, for Hitler. Um, there's a, a huge Nazi symbol, and they're kind of throwing a bomb right on top of it and, and breaking it. And it was that ended. Um, but we are told that once again, the Lord said there will be like the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, the abomination of desolation, once again, there will be an attempt for the house of, you know, this enemy to rise against Jerusalem and to even be worshipped and called above all that is called God. It says, that's what Paul describes in his letter to the Thessalonians. And this time around, the Lord will send his son and the armies of heaven. And so each time we see there are three main attempts against Jerusalem by this 
House of Jupiter. One, the first one results in the story of Hanukkah and, and the rededication of the temple. The second time it results with the release of the Holy Spirit in 70 AD and, and in the destruction of the temple, God sends the Holy Spirit out even brighter to the nations. And the third time these forces will, will come against Jerusalem, um, they will then result in, in the second coming of the Lord and his heavenly armies and the dismantling of, of this entire system of empire with the sons of God who are still behind it, even though in the past 2,000 years as the Holy Spirit has gone forward, it has kind of diminished, but the Lord said that he will give them one final go at the game of empire, and that is ahead of us. Uh, we are waiting for the seventh and final you know, head of the dragon. Um, and, and so we, we are, we're on the verge perhaps of, uh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see how, you know, it's hard to time these things, uh, but we could be very close to its rise. So, so this altar was both the key, um, uh, the throne of Satan in, in, in this verse in, Pergam, in, in the Revelation chapter two, and its association with the altar of Zeus was both the key in understanding, um, the, um, relationship between the gods and the fallen angels as, documented uh, thoroughly in the Word of God in the Old and New Testaments, and also as understanding who was exactly hidden behind this particular, you know, um, deity, Zeus, Jupiter, and then seeing the glorious light of God as he sends three lights th at three key moments. Two have been already done. One is to come. As three times it seems that there is the, this force will rise against Jerusalem, and again, when I say Jerusalem, I don't mean the Jerusalem of, um, you know, what we may think of Jerusalem like a political state or something. Jerusalem in the Bible is the city that the God has put His finger on, from where the Son of King David, the Son of God, will rule the nations in a kingdom that is to come. And I believe it to be a literal kingdom. And I take the thousand year rule of Christ in the book of Revelation, literally, yeah. as I take anything that can be taken literally, literally. You know, there are symbols and, and figures of speech, but it's it's a literal story. That's why the enemy is interested in stopping the city and, and what happens there because of what God intends for it. And so we're going to see the battle for Jerusalem in the political sphere intensify moving forward, especially the battles for the Temple Mount. And these are centers of power. Perhaps even there are ley lines, like it says in the book of Job, in the world and assist them, you know. And so when you control these centers that are very important geographically, you may be able to affect the energy, you know, the ley lines that even flow through the earth and maybe pour, maybe affect people's thinking and hearts and minds. I mean, how is it that these fallen angels are able to affect entire nations? Um, so I think they, they use they use electromagnetic forces and they use all kinds of things. And these are pivotal places on the earth, the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. They, these are important places of spiritual importance that God has put his finger on. And so moving forward, I think the enemy is going to continue to villainize and try to, you know, separate the Jewish people from these places and persecute them, unfortunately, in order to. But the Lord has given them tremendous strength, insight and strategy. It seems so far so good. It's moving forward and uh, we'll see where it all goes. Well, we all we all Amen. know.
go. It's going to go to the second coming of the Lord and establishing of his kingdom. I mean, we're going to see the details of how it's going to unfold. Oh, absolutely. For sure. We agree. And we, we definitely are literal literalists right there with you. So we take the uh, thousand year reign as literal and it's uh, not here yet. We don't take the preterist views of things. And so, no, I think uh, we're right there with you on a lot of things. And man, this stuff is just mind boggling. I remember some of the this stuff when I heard this the first time, you know, when I was a uh, I'm what, I was uh, in a different place in my walk then, right? And so Jeremy and I are both uh, part of a, a ministry called Maranatha Ministries. And so uh, I have a much better understanding, like you said, of word study, the Septuagint, the Masoretic text. And so, uh, you know, everything that, that we're studying, you know, you're, everything you're saying is falling right into that. And it just kind of reminds me, like you said, you know, when you found that work from that uh, archaeologist and it just confirmed everything that, you know, you've been doing. I often say, you know, Lord, if I'm digging into something that's not for me, if I'm headed the the wrong way, you know, turn me around, push me back, you know. And so we keep getting these confirmations with these conversations that we have with people. And it's it's fantastic. And and although we've both heard uh, some of your presentation on this before, all these things keep unfolding, you know, and as you uh, talk about certain things, you know, it just unlocks another thought. And, you know, even as simple as Christ saying that he saw Satan fall like lightning, right? And then we look at Zeus, you know, what's the main representation, you know, uh, lightning bolt, you know? And so exactly. uh, there are, are these markers and keys there. And uh, of course, Jeremy, I want to give you a chance to jump in as well. So I'll wrap it up. But uh, man, it's just fascinating, you know, how much is there, how much information we're given. And when we take the time to dig in ourselves and to study, uh, especially, you know, uh, two or three of us, you know, where we can dig in together and compare notes. And and I think you're right. We're going to have to do this just again and again and again. I, I appreciate you being willing to do so because there's so much there. You know, we barely scratched the surface and I'm left with weeks and weeks worth of new stuff to uh, process and digest. And and uh, so this has just been a blessing. To me as well. Can I just uh, make a comment on your on, on what you brought up about the lightning? Because that's interesting. Of, of course. Yeah. Uh, so that, yes, that was the, the weapon of Zeus. And, and I thought that's interesting. Um, the um, Nazi... Um, uh, Geshta, like the SS, you know, the, you know, the, mm. SS, um, yeah. the SS were a cult. Uh, you didn't have to, you, 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 you volunteered to join the SS and mm. it was like a special unit within the German army. It was different from the national army. It was basically the protectors of the cult of Nazism. And their uniforms had two S's on it, you know, people with the S's, but actually it was by design. It's not that they looked like lightning bolts. It was by design, lightning bolts. And right. I, I have a VC a VHS tape of these Nazi soldiers in a um, um, temple of Zeus. It's an mm. ancient temple of Zeus. Uh, it's just what's left of it from the Greek times. And they're all gathered in there with torches and they are chanting and worshiping Zeus in name by in the, these Nazi soldiers. I have it on VHS tape. Uh, wow. it, it was just a documentary. I know I bought this documentary on the Nazis and I put it in. And I was like, wow. Um, and then in Alaska, the University of Alaska, and I think it's the, the, the Navy, uh, has come up with a weapon that's called harp. That's the um, uh, kind right. of happen. yeah. And what does it do? It it ionizes the atmosphere um, and throws directed bolts of lightning. It's one of the things it's capable to do. It it changes 
it creates earthquakes. Um, when um, Putin attacked Crimea in 2014, I read it myself, an official uh, newsletter with the seal of the Kremlin. Um, he, you know, Putin put out a thing uh, saying that uh, he wanted everyone to know that um, Obama had used the harp weapon on him, which he considered mm. a weapon of mass destruction. And the letter said that the soldiers were standing, you know, off the coast of Crimea. They said they they began to see clouds, formations that they had never seen before. And then shortly after, the entire earth shook. And so I, th I think Obama sent a message to Putin quickly that, you know, the American armament is superior uh, to Russian armament. And I'm willing to go that far. Stop. Stop immediately stopped. And that might have been one of the things that, that he just took Crimea and stopped at that point. Um, so so that's interesting that this weapon exists because the altar of Zeus is in the West. It is the mm -hmm. West that has risen to the place of prominence technologically, economically, militarily, and politically. Yeah, we're an empire. Yes. And I think it is for this reason that Paul has a dream where he's thinking of going east, because if you lived at the time of Paul, a lot of civilization was actually east. You know, you, you went to through the Silk Road from Mesopotamia into Persia, into India, into China. I mean, Christianity reached China, I think, 150 years before it reached the Anglo-Saxons through the Silk Road. Wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, the the... The, one of the signatories of the Council of Nicaea was John of Persia, because you know Persia was kind of a missionary center for for the East, and so so Paul is intercepted by God and he receives a dream, uh, you know, from uh, where this Macedonian man says to him, "Don't go east, come west to us," and so I think God then says, "Okay, I'm going to really fill the West with the Holy Spirit, and make it the center of my." Uh, you know, people, um, so that we can actually hold down, essentially, uh, you know, where all of this worldly power lies. It's our influence. You know, we're influencing it. We're influencing its manifestation, you know, and you kind of you look at, for instance, the, the, the foundation of America, and you can see both a Puritan influence and a pagan influence, like you know, battling each other really from the beginning. And so, so you, this is kind of, you know, the, the, the West becomes the bastion of the gospel and of the word as, as, as the East falls to Islam and Hinduism continues to thrive in India and the worship of ancestors and gods in China. And so really it becomes the West that becomes the beholder of the word of the God for many, many centuries. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is present and propagated and preached. And so perhaps because it is here that the throne lies and the influence of this coming empire, the power of it comes from here. So maybe that's why God sent Paul at the genesis of the movement westward, knowing, you know, the territories of the prince of Greece. Um, and so this is kind of these are things that I'm going to be covering in my upcoming book, The Three Princes, uh, the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Israel and the Prince of Greece. Um, and um, your idea of lightning. That's not news, Allie. That's what we were hoping to hear, that you had something uh, in the works. So that's, uh, I'm chomping oh, yeah. at the bit now, brother. Thank you. Yeah, so the SS had the lightning on their shirts, and Harp, the, the weapon that creates lightning, is also in the West. And Zeus's favorite, you know, associated weapon was that he, he brought lightning 
bolts from the sky. And when I saw the harp, I thought, wow, could it have been that, that Satan was literally, you know, creating lightning bolts because he had this technology. You know, the, the, we are of the world of God and angels, and we continue to discover the mysteries of God's creation, mysteries that these guys may have known before us. And so we are now sending rockets into the second heaven, which is where the sun, the moon, and the stars are, the third heaven being where the temple of the heart of time and space lies. And so, so the first heaven being the sky, we already got there with the Wrights brothers, and now with like NASA and the cosmonauts, but with Elon Musk and, and other people, we are piercing into the second heaven. And so this is, I think, the chariots of Elijah and all of these things. Perhaps another day we can talk about these things. But but we are discovering things that these angels already knew. And so if we are casting lightning into the earth, maybe Zeus did as well, you know. Well, I'm thinking also of like the rods of God, you know, they're always trying to mimic, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, you know, black budget weaponry technology, but it's uh, some kind of satellite released rods, right, that they call the rods of the gods and uh, just real quick i had it pulled up the harp is the high frequency active auroral research program in case anybody wants to look a little deeper into that yeah no, that's you're right <laughs> trying to imitate god's kingdom and capabilities and um and, you know that's that's the two thrones the throne of the messiah and the throne of the antichrist you know a, a priest and a son for the enemy uh, and 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 perhaps the universe and what is whatever is beyond the universe, God's creation, I'm sure, is vast beyond. You know, we can't even fathom how vast it is, but it has a structure. And this, at the heart of this structure, is a kingdom, and a king and his royal priesthood. And so, to create this structure at the heart of the 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 the, the creation is where we are now it seems in the story of creation god is creating the the fundamental structure at the heart of the whole thing that will govern the whole thing and and the enemy i think is trying to imitate that by creating a kingdom of itself starting with earth because this is where those who were made in the image of who are the children of the one who's made of god live and our, our ambition is to expand this into the heavens but I think God has other plans, as, as he's prophesied to us, leading us into the heavenly Jerusalem and, and uh, into ages and ages uh, at a service where we will know him face to face and have a name that he gives us, which is a function, uh, because names in Hebrew thought were functions. So that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. So this is going to be fantastic and wonderful and a great blessing to all of us. Amen. Hey, I just wanted to bring this back to um, Obama and Harp. And that whole situation there. Didn't Obama as well? He did his inaugural speech in at the throne of Satan. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, Obama was also, you know, in Berlin, and he liked that he went to the same museum, Jeez. and 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 he saw the same altar as Albert Speer had, and and he liked it too. And he then decided to create a small version, and you people can you know Google this and see it. And have his inaugural speech done with the backdrop of this altar. And you think, why? Well, I think it testifies of the spirit uh, of Obama, of what was in his heart and mind and what was, Amen. you know, in his subconscious. Uh, he was suddenly taken, you know, by this. He, he liked it. And so he did a lot of damage to Israel. And, and even though he, he also gave lots of weapons and stuff, but still... 
He created political alliances that were troublesome for Israel. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a speech he made as a senator I was watching when he was just rising in the ranks of the Democratic Party and looking into him. And, and he, was, uh, he was saying that um, uh, Abraham, you know, there's a voice that Abraham heard. He says, well, I have never heard this voice in my life. You know, the, the, there's a story that God spoke to Abraham and Abraham heard a call and a voice. He says, I have never heard this voice in my life. He means making this speech as a senator. I don't know what the context of the speech was or where he made it or why. But, you know, that's that's interesting that he did that as well. And with Obama and moving forward with Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, there was this agenda of kind of erasing the Judeo-Christian heritage of America removing the Ten Commandments uh, from public buildings, um, prayer, removing prayer, removing uh, the definitions that make up American culture uh, in alignment with the teachings of the Bible, uh, whether it comes to sexuality, gender identification. Um, so, so there really was an attempt, because when you look at Antiochus Epiphanes, if he's a type of, of the Antichrist, as the Lord I think makes him a type of antichrist in in Matthew chapter 24, you see that he altered the nature of reality for the Hebrew mind before he moved in with his agenda of turning the temple of Jerusalem into an altar to Zeus. He, He didn't come to a people who didn't know God. He altered their perspective of spirituality before he kind of came in. He didn't come like the Romans with an army in the same way. He came more with ruse. And so so this is kind of what Daniel prophesied about Antiochus, that he would come with ruse and flattery, and he did. Yeah. And so I think that the, the Antichrist will also come bearing the news of peace. And let's 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 make peace with Israel. Let's accept Israel as a nation. Let's accept Jerusalem. Let's accept the Temple Mount. Let's give them a portion of the Temple Mount, etc. So, so I think he's going to come. And then at the end, and you know, there's like the Trojan horse. And then three and a half years into his reign, because it will be a seven-year reign, he will then, you know, really open up who he really is. So I think Obama, the fact that his inauguration happened with the backdrop of the altar. You know, and I look at the things he said and did both foreign policy wise and inside of the country. I think that that there's a lot of things that came from his presidency that were challenging directly the Judeo-Christian heritage of America and the Judeo-Christian perspective of Jerusalem and Israel. Um, So that's interesting, you know, that, that those things came from him. Yeah. Also, I believe yeah. that he, ref- I believe that he uh, refused to swear on the Bible, and he made a speech that was just like he, he, he was pretty much in its context. He was pretty much saying that the Bible and our beliefs as Juda- Judeo Christians is like the greatest threat to national security, and this is when yeah. e- everything that is against God just started getting legalized and pushed as natural, like homosexuality, homosexual marriage, and. I don't, you know, I know that he is an antichrist. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not one of those guys that says, or I'm going to pinpoint him as the antichrist, but he's got some, um, he's got some characteristics that I can see why people would think that, you know, um, this says that the antichrist won't really be interested in women and, you know, the whole conspiracy behind Obama, you know, they, they pretty much think that he's actually gay and that his wife is a man type of thing. And, 
you know, and he's pushing all these things that are against God. And I find that his statements are pretty revealing to whose side he's really on and uh, what he wants to do to push whatever spirit is behind him, that agenda. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's very kind of charming and charismatic and well-spoken right. and intelligent. And so you're right. I don't think he's the Antichrist, but I think he's kind of a type. Like like God is like giving us clues um, of the kind of right. guy we're looking for. We're looking for like a Kennedy type guy. Everybody loves him. The Europeans loved him. The Muslims loved him. He he went and made a very important speech in the University of Cairo. He, he kissed the hands of uh, the king of Saudi Arabia. He appeased the Islamic regime in Iran. And so he's kind of this, you know, he, everybody is good other than, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian heritage. And and he did have a Muslim heritage. I mean, his middle name is Hussein. And even though I don't think he was Muslim, but I think that some ideas go into your heart and mind as a child. And unless you consciously pull them out, if you need to pull them out, sometimes you don't want to pull them out. They're good things. But but if you've inherited something bad, if you haven't really pulled it out, it's still working its way in your heart and mind, even as an adult, especially if it was put inside of you early on. Um, and so those were part of his you know, identity as well. And I watched the election, you know, the race um, between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton closely. And I remember when when Hillary Clinton made a speech and she said she was going to accelerate the social change that Obama had began. I feel like that was the moment where I saw a spark and the evangelical movement just rose to support Trump. Like that was like the call to action, that that the that statement. And so I think the Lord did rise to stop this and, and, and gave us a time of reprieve. Yeah, and I think he was pretty critical of the Sermon on the Mount. I remember a speech, you know, where he... Uh, I can think he said, you know, it was hateful or racist or I hate to, to misquote there, but I do know he was very critical of the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, he has a, a shares a lot of physical traits with, a, you know, look up a picture of Akhenaten and compare it to Obama. And it's, okay. I mean, it's chilling. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. There, there's a girl, I, I haven't watched the whole thing, but it's on the internet. Someone sent to me who's done this lineage of all the presidents yeah. and, mm. and all related. Like all yeah. the presidents are related, and Obama's related to that to that bloodline as well. Right, I think they take their uh, lineage back to like Vlad the Impaler. I know, uh, you know, Bush was um, vocal about that. You know, wow, hey, King George the Third or something. I think it was King yeah. George III. Wow. Okay, there we go. So there's definitely bloodlines at work here, uh, because life is transmitted through blood and thoughts. I think, and you know, are transmitted from. Generations, generation, all kinds of things. Traits are, are are transmitted, and very interesting. Well, listen, it's it been is. fascinating to talk to you guys. Can I just put in a plug for my patron page? Um, Absolutely. Okay. Plug it all, brother. Okay, thanks. If people, you know, want to 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 support my ministry and 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 learn more about things uh, that I teach, um, there is a patron page I have. It's is you know patron.com/slash/thinkagainproductions. There I'm going to post audio series, Bible studies in the form of audio series on different topics and books of the Bible. The first one is going to be a chapter by chapter study of the book of Revelation. That's what God has put on my heart. Revelations from Revelation. You go in and you sign up for Patreon. You you know commit to a monthly donation. 
as the Lord has blessed you, I haven't put in an amount. It can be anything you want. It can be $5. It can be $50. You know, it depends uh, on your own resources and, and what God inspires in your heart. And then, you know, I'll just post these audio things and you can listen to it. But it's it's a good way uh, for me also to to be able to to focus on, on these things and provide for my own family. And, of course, you can go to my website, thinkagainproductions.com, watch the documentary UFOs, Angels, and Gods, which we released in 2006. Sign up for the newsletter at the bottom of the page um, by clicking on stay informed or if you want to do a one-time donation or, or even set up a monthly donation there's a donation button down there as well and if you double click on the documentary it'll take you to my youtube page with other videos and you can also subscribe to the youtube page um, on social media facebook and twitter my handle is at ufos angels gods one word so you can you know follow me on those two as well and i post things on both of them actively uh facebook and twitter and so i and email me if you have any questions as long as you know i still have time to respond to people i'm not overwhelmed yet by you know there's lot tons of stuff that comes in every day uh for me to answer but i'm still you know able to do that so don't hesitate to 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 um ask email questions or even post on the facebook based questions for everyone else to see that i can answer uh, and it's always a blessing for me to 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 hear from people and learn from others, um, you know, um, what God has put on people's hearts and minds. Um, so thank you so much uh, for this opportunity, Brian and Jeremy. I really enjoyed uh, uh, the space that you you provided for me to hear to to kind of share and speak into this topic of the throne um, of uh, Satan uh, and and its association with the altar of Zeus. Um, uh, as, as I think uh, connected by the Lord Himself in in Revelation chapter two. Thank you so much for for the time. Amen. We're so grateful to have you. You've really blessed us by being here, and uh, we we uh, it's the least we can do giving you a, a platform there. And uh, you know we'll take you up on that invitation to come back because I mean we've literally just scratched the surface on some of the research that that I've heard of yours in the past. And as we grow in our walk, right, we want to dig deeper and deeper, and of course share that with the listeners as well. So I can't thank you enough, Jeremy. If you wanted to hop in or give any closing thoughts, I know Ollie's got to go. We've kept him a, a while longer than we planned, but I, I just appreciate you being here yeah i just want to say one thing um you know i know that most of that was off the top of your head and i just want to say that that is the greatest freestyle i think i've ever heard that's better than anything eminem has ever produced <laughs> thanks that was awesome thank agreed thank you uh, thank you guys agreed. i i know I, I hope that this is edifying to your audience and yes anytime you want just send me a message and we'll continue putting the pieces of the biblical puzzle together uh it's a fascinating fascinating thing for sure and we want to hear more about this book you know as that starts to unfold as well so i uh, lord thank willing god bless you both thank you very Amen. much thank you for listening to buy their fruits may the lord bless the giver the gift, and the receiver.
Thank you for listening to Buy Their Fruits. May the Lord bless the giver, the gift, and the receiver. <laughs>